everyone, and welcome to Myth Matters, storytelling and conversation about mythology and why myth matters to your life today. I'm your host and personal mythologist, Dr. Katherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Well, way back in the 5th century BCE, around uh, 411 BCE to be exact, a comedy written by the Greek dramatist Aristophanes was performed uh, called The Lysistrata. Now, The Lysistrata was one of three peace plays written by Aristophanes. And all three of these plays were performed at the time that Athens was engaged in the Peloponnesian Wars. Now, these wars went on for a very long time, 20-some years, and they were it was an extended war between Athens and Sparta, and the Persians were involved. And this particular play was performed at a time when Athens was really in a pretty desperate crisis. Their navy had been pretty much destroyed in one very disastrous battle, and they were anticipating both the Spartans and the Persians moving in on them. And although many of the citizens at the time didn't know it, there were a lot of intrigues going on involving possible alliances with the Persians that were going to undermine Athenian democracy. In the midst of all of this, Aristophanes wrote a comedy, which was also a dream about peace, and this was the Lysistrata. Now, later on in this program, I'm going to give you a gloss of the plot of that play, so no worries if it is unfamiliar to you. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about why I'm thinking about this (laughs) and get to the primary topic of today's podcast, which is the changing and significantly larger and more important role that women are playing in public life and in the current protests here in the United States. Of the many changes that are underway, one thing that uh, I've been observing for a while, and I imagine that you have too, is the number of women who are organizing, speaking, leading, and showing up in greater and greater numbers with what feels to me to be a very different and thrilling awareness of their personal power and right to claim it. Now, <laughs> this is not a smooth and open road, and women are not receiving a warm welcome, of course. We've got the patriarchy to contend with, with its poisonous misogyny that has to be deliberately and consciously thrown off by each of us, just like the poisons of racism and classism and all of those other isms. What I'd like to unpack a little bit today 
is the mythological backdrop for this struggle and for the incredible um, animosity that appears when women attempt to speak out publicly about the things that concern them. And although Greek and Roman cultures and mythologies are not the only traditions shaping Western culture, the Greeks and this play by Aristophanes in particular is an entry point into some reflections about both the mythological backdrop and also your own participation and strategy at this time. Events all around the world are revealing the truth that we are, in fact, the ones that we have been waiting for, right? There are no leaders who are going to capably move us through this global cultural transformation And in fact, the new role of the individual and a change in our concept of what that means to be an individual in community may well be the kernel, the heart of that transformation. So let me tell you in brief the plot of the play, The Lysistrata by Aristophanes. So as I mentioned, this play was performed in Athens at a very critical point in the Peloponnesian War, and the audience would have been pretty much all men, and all of the actors would have been men. And the play opens with a woman named Lysistrata, who has decided that the war has to come to an end that peace is absolutely necessary because it's costing far too much. And it's costing women and children a great deal. Families are disrupted and women are losing the husbands and fathers and brothers and other men upon whom they depend for various forms of support as well as for company. So Liz Estrada decides that the women need to take the matter of peace into their own hands, and she reaches out to women in Sparta and other places that are the enemies of Athens and manages to get women to come together in Athens. And she says to them, we need to do this We need to be the ones who make peace happen for reasons I don't need to explain to you. And the way that we can do this is by, first of all, having a sex strike. First of all, we will all agree that we're not going to have sex with men until there's a peace. And secondly... I've sent a group of women to go and occupy the Acropolis. And the Acropolis was the center of government in Athens, and it is also where they kept the treasury. So women occupying the Acropolis would disrupt men from doing the normal business of government 
and paying the army. Now, there was a lot of back and forth about this initially. Women were kind of unsure, but eventually they were all persuaded. And the goddess Aphrodite and the goddess Athena both had something to do with this whole setup. Athena was the patron goddess of the city of Athens. <laughs> Athens was named after her. And she was a warrior, virgin goddess of great intellect. And she lent her energies to strengthen the women in their resolve to abstain from sex and also lent them courage to enact this strategy of taking over the Acropolis. Aphrodite, on her end, instilled in the men of Athens and Sparta and the various other warring states a deeper longing for heterosexual sex than they normally would possess. So the women agree that they're going to do this and they start their strike. And the first thing that happens is a group of men, older men, go to take the Acropolis back from the occupying women, which happens to be a somewhat a group of somewhat older women. And this is a comedy, so there are a very funny set of interactions where the men ineptly try and batter down the doors and <laughs> set fires to smoke the women out. And the women put out the fires and douse the men with water. And there's a lot of sexual innuendo involved in this ineffectual wood and the dousing of fires. And the, the men are repulsed, and the women retain control of the Acropolis, and so control of the purse strings of government. The sex strike is also having an effect. But the men are, are really resisting as, as best they can, and there are a few cracks in the ranks among the women, and Lysistrata has to, uh, you know, give some of them a talking to and restrain them from giving in to their own lustful urges. And then the energy of the play gets centered around one particular Athenian husband who comes to the Acropolis to beg his wife to come home and to have sex with him. And she says, oh, yes, dear. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, yes, I do miss you and my children. Okay. But you know, before we can make love, we've really got to have a proper bed. And she pretends that she's going through the motions to kind of create that and get that set up. And he's waiting very, very impatiently. And all of the male actors in this play at this point, including this poor young gentleman, are sporting these very large and uncomfortable erections. And But then once the bed's together, then she needs perfume. And then once she's got the perfume, well, then she needs oil because they really should give each other massages. And it goes on and on, and you get the point. And he's getting more and more frustrated. And, and then finally, 
she disappears into the Acropolis and doesn't come back. And he has to go home in a state of tremendous frustration and discomfort. This interaction between this couple then is meant to illustrate the peak of tension that has come into Athenian culture in general. And so now uh, the men begin to gather in Athens and talk about whether or not they can put down their arms in order to regain the favors of their women folk. And Lysistrata plays a role then in negotiating that peace. In fact, she brings a very beautiful naked young woman named Peace, or to represent Peace, out in front of the men. And they rather pornographically uh, divvy up her body as a metaphor for coming to the terms of peace. And then, yay, the war's over, and uh, everybody goes back to copulating at will. Now, this play (laughs) has been told and retold and staged in a variety of ways for centuries, I feel pretty confident that it's been performed more often than any of Aristophanes' other comedies. And in part, this is because the language and the jokes in it are more accessible to us today. We don't have to know nearly as much Greek (laughs) or as much about Greek culture to understand the satire. But it's also been told because there's something very appealing about this idea that women have this kind of power and that they come together for such an important collective good as peace. And so there are cases in which this play has been staged to support and express what we call today a feminist perspective and the idea that women have a role in politics. For example, I think it was 2003, the Lysistrata was staged in many places in the United States and around the world as part of a protest against uh, the Bush administration's wars against Iraq. Now, I'm going to assume that you see and hear the feminist potential in this play. And yet to imagine for a second that Aristophanes and the Greeks, primarily male, remember, who saw this play staged had even (laughs) a fraction of the consciousness that we would call feminist uh, today To imagine that for even a second would be a gross misunderstanding of ancient Greek civilization. And while we are constantly working with and updating the mythological material that we inherit, I feel that it is very important that we understand this distinction 
because myths that don't work anymore, myths that we actively seek to alter, which is part of the process of cultural transformation, those myths that don't work anymore, they don't die. They become dysfunctional. They oppress us or we oppress others with them. If we don't fundamentally understand their roots and their message. Athenian society, at the time that this play was produced, Athenian women were not citizens. They did not have rights. They couldn't vote. They couldn't hold office. It was highly improper for them to discuss politics publicly. They could not go around the city unescorted. They were educated at home according to the wishes of their fathers and their future husbands. They were in arranged marriages, and they had one purpose and one purpose only, which was to produce children. Men were in charge of everything, and they had a lot of sex with each other. (laughs) Heterosexual sex was not anywhere near as important as it has been in most of Western culture over the subsequent centuries. It certainly was not equated with any kind of transcendent experience. And I'm not saying that there wasn't real love between men and women, husbands and wives. There was. But what we're talking about in the context of this play is um, an absurd fantasy. That's why it was a comedy. Not just because they're making jokes about sex, but because the idea that women would be able to restrain their insatiable appetites for sex, sex that men could take or leave for the most part, in order to play any kind of public role in something as important as a war, was the ultimate joke. It was a very edgy move on the part of Aristophanes, for sure. But it was a joke. And one of the ways that we know this is because it took the intervention of the two goddesses, Aphrodite and Athena, to manipulate the situation such that the women could succeed. We also know this because Aristophanes tells us that this story is a dream. If what we are talking about together today is of interest to you, then I highly recommend a small but very potent book titled Women in Power, a Manifesto by Mary Beard. Beard is a professor of classics at the University of Cambridge, and she very skillfully draws the connections between ancient Greek mythology and society and the contemporary animosity aimed at women who speak out publicly and who attempt to gain public office like run for president. 
here in the United States. She examines the vitriol, I mean, the real hatred of the trolls that come out against women who have an opinion and feel entitled to express it, and ancient, ancient roots in Greek culture. I'm going to give you one little example, and I think if you meditate on it, you will feel the truth of this in our current moment today. Beard writes that there were only two main exceptions in the classical world to the general stricture and extreme prejudice against women's public speaking. I mean, according to the Greeks, she says that a woman who endeavored to speak in public was not actually even a woman. And I know I can feel that to be true today. But she says the two main exceptions were, first, women are allowed to speak out as victims and as martyrs, usually to preface their own death. So women are allowed to speak out as victims and as martyrs, usually to preface their own death. But even when they came out with those kinds of messages, uh, there was no assumed burden on the men to listen, to believe it, to take it seriously, or to take action. Beard also talks about the way that the ancient Greeks, and this was true also of the Romans, uh, how they divided their society into the polis, which was the public, powerful community realm, and oikos, which was the home and the household. Now, ultimately, men were in charge of both. They had the final say in both realms. But oikos, the home, was the place that women were expected to take charge. They were expected to bear children, raise children, manage the slaves, make sure everybody got fed, all of that sort of a thing. And it occurred to me as I was watching The Wall of Moms in Portland, Oregon, over the course of this week, that what feels so revolutionary about that is that they are taking the space and also that by proclaiming themselves to be mothers, they are both owning a particular moral authority that belongs to mothers as the creators and custodians of our lives, and also because they are stepping out of the oikos. They are compelled because the polis is in such sad and sorry shape to leave the oikos and move into the polis. I am really inspired by the bravery of these women. I am inspired by their growing numbers, and I'm inspired by the many men who are coming to their aid in this time. And yet you can feel the echoes of this division of the world into uh, the areas in which men have absolute sovereignty and the areas in which women are expected to assume some. Returning to the Lysistrata 
then. We have this story that is part of our mythology of a past that is still very present, very active in our society. And we already have many attempts and variations on that core story that have been handled by feminists and others that attempt to draw out the power that's in it and to do something with it. But as I say, my contention is we can't do this important task of remaking of what the Greeks called mythopoesis effectively unless we really know what we're working with. So we need to go below and beyond our initial attraction to stories like the Lysistrata and look at the underlying ideas that supported them so that we can go at the root, so to speak. Now, another thing that we must do, you and I, in this time, as we take up this quest in our various ways as individuals or as citizens to change the stories, to break out of unlimiting frameworks, to tear down dysfunctional systems, we need to ask ourselves, what's the point? In any given instance, why do I feel the need to change this? Is it because I want to be included? Is it because I want to play a role in what is? Do I want to simply swap out a the prince for a princess, in my case? Or is it that I want to be allowed into the story and to be able to assume a different role? To use that fairy tale metaphor again, uh, in my case, you know, is it that I, not that I want to do as a princess what the prince was allowed to do, but maybe I want to get into the story and I just want to be the king. I want to play a role that I haven't been allowed to play. Or is it possible that I want to change the stories because I want to change the definitions and the roles and the goals, the plot line, entirely? Food for thought. You know, this is a very interesting time to be a mythologist because I feel that I must advocate for the soul life, for the mythic perspective, as essential to a humane humanity. And at the same time, the actual literal myths that is the texts from the past and their elaboration over the last, say, 4,000 years are part of the problem. So yes, a very interesting time to be a mythologist or to be working with myth and a very creative time. As a myth dies and the pressure for new forms builds, that myth, that story, it loses its ability to give meaning and coherence to life and it becomes increasingly ideological and oppressive and This is such a time. This is what 
we are seeing. This is what many of us are experiencing. And it is my aim every time that we meet here through Myth Matters to aid you in this understanding and help you find your way through it using the tools at hand, which paradoxically, beautifully include the old stories themselves. A couple more things before I go today. First, if you want more on this topic, if you would like for me to speak more about um, women in power or the ancient Greeks or the relationship between the old stories and the methods we have for working with them, then please email me your comments or your questions, or you can post them on the Facebook page for Myth Matters. I want to mention to those of you who interact with me on Facebook or listen to the podcast via Facebook that I'm feeling increasing pressure to just abandon the whole platform because I find the politics so abhorrent. So please consider getting on my email list and moving your point of contact with me away from Facebook because I think the day is rapidly coming when I'm going to stop uh, using Facebook altogether. And on a similar note, if you are interacting with me via Facebook, please share the podcast with other people that you know because I don't want to have to boost the posts and give dollars to Mark Zuckerberg. The other thing I wanted to share is that we've been talking about the Greeks, and I mentioned that the Wall of Mothers here in the United States in Portland, Oregon, was one catalyst of that for me. But I have another really interesting and inspiring resource for you if you want to spend some more time with women who are playing incredible roles in their societies to bring about change. And that is the Women, War, and Peace series, which are interviews and documentaries produced by Abigail Disney. And yes, it is that Disney is telling the stories of women who are leading women's movements in conflict zones all around the world, including the story of Nobel Peace Prize winner Lema Gwabi, who led a group of Liberian women in a protest that brought about the end of their civil war. That particular documentary is called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. It's moving and inspiring, and I highly recommend it. And I will be posting the links to that and to the Women, War, and Peace series on my website, along with the transcript of this episode. And that is it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth Matters for this week. Please contact me with your questions or comments. Thank you very much for sharing Myth Matters with other people, spreading the word about what we're doing here. 
I offer a deep virtual bow of gratitude to my new financial supporters on Patreon and Bandcamp. A shout out to Allison and Lisa Metchum, who joined this last week. Thank you so much, Allison and Lisa. If you are finding value in Myth Matters, then I hope that you will consider making a monthly pledge to support the program and make future episodes of Myth Matters possible. Take good care of yourself, my friend, and until next time, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm-hmm.